Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. But what are some things, even what you know about color, what are some things that we should be thinking about in the next iteration? Where is the next thing that we should be focusing on? So Colorado is a great example because you have the office for the parents council and then you also have the children's council office. So you are, I mean, that is one thing that I sort of want to highlight about the family justice initiative is we are focused on parents representation and high quality representation for children. Beyond the collab of Babel, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collab of Babel, keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collab of Babel, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collab of Babel, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collab of Babel a podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, system improvement, and system reform in the Colorado courts, and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The star of today's podcast is Elizabeth Thort, attorney consult at the ABA Center on Children and the Law. I am your Collabobapple host, Bill Delisio, Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. Good afternoon, Liz. How are you today? I'm good, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great. Can you tell the audience where we were, where we are recording today? We are at um, the Ritz in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, at the ABA National Parent Attorney Conference. All right, National Parent Attorney Conference. Now, I know I've been to this conference a few times. Is this the fourth or fifth iteration of this? You know, I think it's the fourth. But do not quote me on that. I mean, I know I'm being recorded. Yeah. But, but for the context of yeah. it, I mean, I think this is a, a biannual con- conference. It, it's only been probably less than a decade that we've had parents' attorneys coming together as a group to learn and share and teach one another and, and really start to work on reforming and improving representation for parents and making it a, a, like a cornerstone of dependency and neglect reform. Absolutely. Uh, and you've been with the ABA in many roles over the years. You, um, could you just kind of give a little bit of context on that? Oh, sure. So um, I started, I came to the ABA from California where I did direct practice representing children and parents um, in both LA County and San Francisco. Um, I started with the ABA in 2009, which was the first year of the National Parent Attorney Conference. Um, and Professor Marty Guggenheim spoke at that conference's opening plenary. Um, and it was amazing to hear sort of all the things that you think about child welfare, especially when you're practicing and representing parents in particular, um, sort of all the system bias that you see and a lot of times the unfairness that families face. Um, hearing someone talk about that out loud in front of a group of child welfare professionals was really powerful. You know, hearing someone sort of talk about the truth of the system and what it looks like to many families um, was amazing. So I started my time at the ABA as a staff attorney um, with the Parent Attorney Project. Um, and then I left to go to Casey Family Programs, um, which is a partner of the ABA and do similar work, but more focused on immigrant families um, and helping parents who have immigration issues 
as well as a child welfare issue. And now I am back um, as an attorney consultant working with the ABA, the Children's Law Center in Los Angeles, where I actually started my career in dependency um, in the Center for Family Representation in New York and Casey Family Programs. Um, They started those three groups um, with the partnership of Casey Family Programs started the Family Justice Initiative in 2016. 2016. So that sounds like you've kind of told us the story of becoming uh, the Family Justice Initiative Attorney uh, Director, or was it? Attorney Consultant. Attorney Consultant. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but is there anything else that you wanted to add just uh, in, in your career in this, in this area? Um, just... I think that when I came to the child welfare field, it wasn't, you know, I, I didn't come to it in a very sort of thoughtful way. I was practicing law at a large law firm and was very unhappy. And I had a friend who went to the Children's Law Center um, and said that, you know, she had moved careers and was representing children in foster care. And I thought that that sounded like amazing work to do. Um, so I ended up at the Children's Law Center. I loved working there. Um, but I think I had a very different perspective on the parents, um, when I first started out in child welfare, um, especially when I was just representing children, I, I don't think I had the same perspective that I gained. Um, when I moved to San Francisco in order to stay in child welfare fields, you had to represent both parents and children. And initially I sort of took the approach as, you know, I represent children. I don't really want to represent parents, but I will because I want to stay in this field. And um, going through the process of representing parents learned so much more about, you know, the families, what they're going through, the parents, you know, they want to be with their children, do what they need to do to keep them safe. And I think ended up enjoying that work even more than representing children. Okay. I, you know, finding it that you had the ability to have so much more of an impact in some ways because um because there was no one else on their side and i think um because of this conference um and because the way the field has changed since when i started practicing which was a long time ago um it doesn't feel like that anymore it feels like there's been movement where you know there's more support for families for children to be in their families um and more support sort of for all parties in the proceedings well i really like how you you're you're drawing a across different experiences on different sides of the table or on different um, sides of the courtroom. Um, what is, what does beyond the collabo babble mean to you? So beyond the collabo babble means to me two things. One, it means thinking about collaboration, but actually doing collaboration, um, which is hard. And I think that is one of the strengths of the family justice initiative is that it, does bring together parents, attorneys, and children's attorneys, and these different organizations that are leaders in the field to say, when we speak together with one voice, we're more powerful as a group. Um, so in some ways, beyond the cloud will babble means actually bringing, yeah. really collaborating, not just talking about sure. it. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing it means to me is doing more than just talking. So actually putting something into action to make the change that you want to see. So can you just talk a little bit with the audience about what the Family Justice Initiative is and the goals of the Family Justice Initiative and uh, and just kind of paint us a picture of, of where you think it's going to take our field? Sure. 
So in 2016, um, with the support of Casey Family Programs, the ABA Center on Children and the Law and the Children's Law Center of California were asked to bring together legal experts for parents, parent attorney and children's attorney, legal experts from around the country, as well as researchers, policymakers, um, court administrators, judges, leaders in the field of child welfare to talk about representation for parents and children. Um, and I actually wasn't at that meeting because um, I was doing more of the immigration work at that time. But um, all of these people came together in Denver and oh. um, you know, brought together these different groups and different stakeholders to try to come up with what is our, what is one consensus goal that we can have around representation in the child welfare field? Um, that we can go with one voice and advocate for. And what the group came up with was um, the mission of the Family Justice Initiative, which is we want to make sure that every child and every parent has high quality legal representation when courts make life-changing decisions about their families. Um, so that was sort of the seed that planted the Family Justice Initiative. Um, and after that meeting, um, through a partnership with the ABA Center on Children and Law, the Children's Law Center of California, Children's Law Center of California, and the Center for Family Representation, um, brought together the Family Justice Initiative and focused the work on three main goals. So one goal is how do we as a group define high quality? You know, it's one thing to talk about it, but what do we mean when we're talking about that? Um, so a lot of our initial work was around bringing together, again, a group of children's attorneys and parents' attorneys, um, experts from around the country to really talk through what we mean by high quality. And we came up with um, some essential attributes of high quality representation and what that should look like. Um, and I can talk more about that, too. Um, the other focus of our work is to build a communication strategy, a national communication strategy to build public support for high quality representation for families in child welfare proceedings, and also to change um, stereotypes or common narratives about families that are involved in the system. I think that we think a part of changing people's views and building support for legal representation in these cases ties into how people view the families and maybe what some common sort of myths are about families okay. that are involved in child welfare. Um, and then the third prong of our work is working with sites that want to make changes to have high quality programs for both children and parents um, in jurisdictions and then use data um, to really evaluate what are we doing and what difference is it making for families. Um, so okay. that's the three main focuses of so our work. So it's the attributes of, of um, quality representation, mm -hmm. communication of the importance of quality representation yes. and breaking some of the myths around what the, who the families that we serve are. Yes. And then the, we call them demonstration sites, but jurisdictions that commit to, we're going to implement these attributes and we're going to measure what impact that has and hopefully see further change and growth of high quality representation around the country. Now, do you have a cohort of, 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 of jurisdictions right now that you're working with? We do. So um, we, some of the sort of fundamentals of the high quality 
attributes, you know, we we broke them down into individual attorney attributes and then system attributes. Um, so the individual attorney attributes are things that you would some things that you would think are common sense. Like we expect that attorneys know how to be a lawyer and know the rules of evidence, know child welfare law, but also that they approach their cases understanding that you are not just the in-court bulldog for your client. You have a role in meeting with your client outside of court, you know, walking with them through this process. Um, That that out-of-court work and relationship building that you do with your client, helping them engage in services and understand the process is just as important as the in-court advocacy. Understanding bias and system bias and how your own bias can impact your relationship with your client and then also how systemic bias can impact your client and ways to fight against that. But then another key part of the attributes is making sure that systems are in place that allow attorneys to do what they need to do. So, you know, one of the things that we really highlight as being an essential element of high quality representation is having the ability to work as part of an interdisciplinary team so that as an attorney, you're not just you working alone on behalf of your client, but that you have social workers you can rely on or peer mentors um, for youth, a youth mentor who's been through the system, for parents, a parent who's been through the system, that you have access to investigators or interpreters or an education expert for children's attorneys or parents' attorneys. So really looking at representation and the importance of having that multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary team as part of the child's or parent's team. I think I heard Professor Guggenheim mention this morning in his opening comments that the maybe the era of the solo practitioner taking cases as an individual may be ending in, in, in the near future. Is, is this part of the reason why? Because we are really going to be pushing to have this interdisciplinary approach, teaming attorneys with social workers and parent partners or peers Um, pair coaches, that kind of a thing? Yeah, I think that that is where the field is going. And it's based on, you know, it's not just something that we pulled out of thin air, but it actually is based on evaluation of what works for families and what helps families have better outcomes. And um, when researchers have looked at higher quality representation, when attorneys do have access to work as part of a team, um, they have found that children reunify faster, have more safe reunification, so they don't re-enter the system. And in some cases, if reunification is not possible, reach other permanency faster. Okay. So, you know, we think it makes sense, but it also, the evidence has shown that's yeah. where things should So there's go. research that shows that. I, I think I'm <clears throat> familiar with research that shows those parent partner situations and like family treatment drug court models mm-hmm. show that there's better outcomes. So we're kind of taking some of the best that we've learned around dependency and neglect practice and focusing in it on in a model, an interdisciplinary representation model that could be applied in every case, especially if your state already has the capacity to provide attorneys. But I know that there are some places where in Colorado, we have a statewide office and mm-hmm. every parent's entitled. Um, is that the case in all the jurisdictions you're working in? Or That is not the case nationally. Um, I think there's, you know, it, it's a spectrum. Some cases like Colorado is far ahead and doing great things. N- New York City um, with the Bronx Defenders and Center for Family Representation they are, you know, they already have this model in place. Other places are just getting started or 
you know, they don't have oversight of attorneys. So there's a whole spectrum of where people are nationally. So for some of the listeners to be on the Collab Babel, they're going to be used to a system in Colorado that there's always been contract attorneys appointed. And since 2015 or when the office opened in 2016, and now an office of respondent parent counsel. So we kind of, I think in Colorado, have some built-in advantages that other places aren't aren't experiencing. But what are some things, even what you know about Colorado, what are some things that we should be thinking about in the next iteration? Where is the next thing that we should be focusing on? So Colorado um, is a great example because you have the Office for the Parents Council, and then you also have the Children's Council office. So you are, I mean, that is one thing that I sort of want to highlight about the Family Justice Initiative is we are focused on parents' representation and high-quality representation for children. Um, okay. So, yeah. So yeah, I thanks think Colorado's for, Thanks for a, bringing that. I'm, I'm thinking parent-parent, because we're at yeah. the Parent Council Conference right now, but just yesterday, uh, the the conference that was more focused on, uh, I think, the 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 whole spectrum of attorneys representing children and parents mm-hmm. were here. So yeah, let's let's talk about how we have those two real yeah. advantages built in. So you have sort of the double advantage of having good systems in place for both. Um, where I think would be interesting to see Colorado think more about is um, well, one we would love if Colorado was interested in being a demonstration site, <laughs> and okay. I can talk more about that. But um, yeah, let's talk about yeah. that. We'll have to get Melissa yes. and Chris involved in this yes. conversation. Um, so that would be a great opportunity, and I think Colorado would be perfectly situated to do that because you do have those oversight offices, so can implement and have the structure in place to implement some additional changes. Um, one thing that I've learned at this conference, where I could see a place like Colorado going is um, really integrating the social work aspect um, and teaming more into the practice. Um, So we heard from the Center for Family Representation earlier today talking about their shared ownership and shared authorship model of interdisciplinary work and how the social worker and attorney are an even playing field where the social worker doesn't work for the attorney, the attorney doesn't work for a social worker, but they really do team and collaborate on every case. So I think seeing things go in that direction is would be where I would say okay. I see the practice leading. And that's kind of, you know, Colorado has these built-in advantages today, but this is where we want all jurisdictions in the country, we want this to be the gold standard for representation. That doesn't mean that the children's attorneys and the parents' attorneys don't separately train and, and learn their craft, but we also, let's come together and learn how to work with one another and let's integrate the social workers and let's learn how to communicate and work uh, differently. I think I was listening to you interview the folks from New York City, and that's one thing that they, they really made a really nice, uh, gave a really nice picture of how they team. Social workers and attorneys sit in the same office. Yes. Like they share office share with one another. They hear each other's phone calls. They 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 learn how to communicate uh, across disciplines. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. great. And I think the other thing where I see sort of the practice heading or what some of the family justice initiative is about is that everyone's better off when all the parties have high quality representation. So sometimes I think that past there was sort of, you know, parents and children's attorneys weren't working together to advocate for representation for all family members with a unified 
voice and mission mm-hmm. and sort of bringing that to life. Like, yeah. The places where we have common goals, you know, a, a parent is going to be better off if their child has an attorney who meets with the child. Here's yeah. what that child's objectives are and what they want and what they want for their family. That if you have a child's attorney who's providing high quality representation to their client, ultimately that's going to help the family yeah. as a whole. Yeah. And same for the child. If the parent has an attorney that's helping that parent, you know, being sure they're treated fairly through the process, um, that they understand what's happening, know how to engage in services, that's going to help the child. So I think that's where that's, we all have things in common. How does the Family <laughs> Justice Initiative take a look at things like litigation, filing motions, filing appeals? So those are part of um, one thing that we're doing with the demonstration sites is um, we have a team of university researchers who are providing technical assistance to each of our demonstration sites. And that team, um, which includes professors at Berkeley, the University of Missouri, um, private researching professionals, um, action research partners um, is another one of the providers. They have worked with the demonstration sites and the FJI partners to come up with a um, a data collection tool that gives measures of what we want to measure. If we're talking about high quality, here are the things that we want to measure um, to see if we're doing what we say we're going to do. And then also looking at outcomes. Okay. Um, so some of the things that we measure are you know, how many motions do you make in court? And we really limited that to written motions because, you know, as a practicing child welfare attorney, you're making oral motions all the time. I mean, you could say anytime you ask for visitation on the record that that's a motion, but really thinking through, if we're going to professionalize the practice and make it more sort of formal, you know, how often are people Mm -hmm. having time to file written motions? How often are they filing a notice of appeal, or if there's a collateral matter, making a referral to another expert who can help with that. So those are um, data points that we're looking okay. at, and we are um, sharing that document so other people can access it. And it's not just for the purpose of litigation or uh, pursuit of the adversarial process. It's to professionalize, to be a little bit more formal, because maybe the informality that we that we hoped to operate under led to some unintended consequences over the years. Yeah, I think we talk about that in our um, quality attributes document too, is that first and foremost, as an attorney, you're a lawyer and you're bound by your professional ethics and achieving your client's goals. If you can do that in a collaborative manner, that's, that's great. You know, if, if you can achieve the goals by being collaborative, that is great. But sometimes you do have to litigate and you have to be willing and have the ability, you know, people have to recognize that in this system that we refer to as collaborative, if you're a parent losing your kids, it probably doesn't feel that collaborative. So, you know, I mean, we have to keep that in mind that, you know, it is collaborative when it helps the client achieve their goals, Goals. but we have to be able to also be a turn, you know, to litigate issues when they need to be litigated. So what are some of the, some of the, I would say not normal, but maybe common uh, concerns that people that are maybe kicking the tires on the family justice initiative, thinking about bringing it to their jurisdiction. What are some of those common questions that you feel like they have to have answered before they're really ready to go full on? Um, well, one common question I think 
in terms of being a demonstration site. Yeah. So we, two of the sort of key elements of the attributes that we thought it would make sense for jurisdictions to implement and then measure the impact on were the interdisciplinary practice um, and also caseloads and compensation. Um, so another thing that we talk about in the attributes is what is the reasonable caseload for this type of practice for children and parents? And we have, um, you know, based on research, based on the experience of attorney managers that are part of our work groups, have um, stated in those attributes that we think, again, based on research, based on people's experience, that more than 60 clients is not doable for all of the things that attorneys should be doing in these cases. So for a parent's attorney, 60 parents? For a child's attorney, sixty, 60 clients. Sixty clients. Yes. So that, I'm I'm sure you're finding jurisdictions where that's way lower than it's what the average caseload is. Yeah, I'd say most of the in most of the country, it's much much lower than the. I mean, average where are you, you're seeing caseloads over a hundred easily. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So the a lot of consensus has been that is much lower, and we knew that when we put together this document, but we really wanted to say this isn't about just improving the system a little bit. Like we really want this to say, this is what should be and work towards that. So no demonstration site though has taken us up on lower so caseloads. You <laughs> so you're talking about a lower caseload and partnering with social work and potentially parent partners or peer yes, coaches. So, so, wow, there's a lot more resources that the family can access yes. and support that they can feel. Yes. But in order to be a demonstration site, we ask jurisdictions to commit. I mean, it'd be wonderful if they would commit to both, that they could do both, but we don't bring financial support. So um, most jurisdictions, actually all of the current demonstration sites have said that they want to focus on an interdisciplinary practice for both parent and child. And then the other piece is collecting the data and um, working with the evaluate, working with the researchers to really collect your data so you can look at the impact you're having down the line. We don't have to get too deep into okay. it, but what are the data? What are the data challenges? Because I, I mean, in all aspects of my work, I, we want to gather data, but it always comes down to how do you get it? Uh, how many data points can you actually collect in a reasonable yes. period of time? So well, how much, what are you trying to collect? So um, I don't have it in front of me, mm. but we do have in that um, information that we ask sites to look at, we have 11 key indicators okay. that we want every site to collect. Um, and I don't know what they are off the top oh, of my head. But, no, um, yeah, we didn't have yeah. to get into that. But 11, that's at least, yeah. that's like a reasonable number. We thought it was reasonable. Yeah. And then there's other tiers that people can choose to collect, but do not have to. But it's 11 that we want people to collect. Across jurisdictions. Across kind of, jurisdictions. So you can kind of compare <laughs> jurisdiction against jurisdiction with the same data point. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then one of the challenges I think is how people currently, like how people currently manage their cases. If people are using a paper case management system, I think that makes collecting data much harder. Mm. If people have an electronic case management system, that makes collecting data easier. We've heard from some of the researchers we work with that a challenge to collecting data can be getting staff to buy into it. So really talking to staff and the people who are doing the work and already have so much on their plate about yeah. why this matters. I guess in some places it would be the attorney themselves and, yeah. and in other places it may, they may have some staff assistants that would be the ones entering that data. Yeah. Yeah. I think in a lot of the sites, 
several of our sites are in California and they have a system there for case tracking. So I think the attorneys enter it themselves, oh, okay. but it is pretty streamlined. But for some places, collecting those 11 data points, it's adding sort of what they enter onto the plate. Mm -hmm. So I think that can be a challenge. So if the, if the data analysis turns out to look the way that we're hoping, what, where do you, where do you, how do you see that helping on a systems level? And what is that advocating for more resources, not only necessarily at the state levels, but maybe on a national level? I mean, getting the representation model in place as a expectation of child welfare? I mean, that would be one of our, that's one of our goals. I think if we, with the collecting the data, currently we don't have funding to do a full-fledged evaluation, but we want these sites that are making changes to have the data in place so that when we do have funding for that, we can have a full-fledged evaluation. Okay. Um, I think where we see or why we see data is so important is um, I do think it drives policy change. There is the current opportunity with drawing down 4E dollars to support legal representation for parents and children, you know, which is the first time that the government, the federal government has given money to support legal representation for parents and children. It's a huge development. So we think this is a great opportunity and time to start new programs, to start innovative practice with federal support and to really look at the impact you're having and hopefully build on that. Okay. Then one more question, maybe more, but oh. one more question about the myth busting. Mm -hmm. What are the, what are the myths that the top couple of myths that we are, that maybe we're, we want to bust or that we're starting to see some real, some real changes in the way people are looking at the families that we serve. I think one myth that we want to target right off the start, I haven't thought about this okay. <laughs> okay. question as much, but I think one myth or what we hear a lot is we could never do that in my jurisdiction. And that's where I think we want to start saying, no, you, we can, and places have done it. Gotcha. So yeah, I think that's a common sort of myth in the field. Mm -hmm. You know, New York city might be able to do this, but we could never mm -hmm. do it. Yeah. Um, and so finding that places where they are doing it, I think Colorado is a great example of that. I mean, all the changes that have happened in Colorado in a pretty short period of time. Yeah. I know when I started at the ABA, it was just starting and I listened. It was just like a goal <laughs> yeah. written on paper. <laughs> yes. That, and that now actually... it's come to life. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that Colorado is a huge example of myth busting. Yeah. The 2005 <laughs> creation of a task force that set some goals. It took 10 years, but you're right. It can happen in your jurisdiction. And mm -hmm. you may think you have a political climate where you won't have a receptive audience. But I think what we learn is don't, don't sell yourself short because if you package the message to whatever audience the right way there. Oh, it seems like most people are going to be open to wanting to help children and families yeah. and parents and yes. start to understand that you're helping your community if you do this. Yeah. And I think that for me is, um, especially cause I started my career just representing children and, and I don't, you know, the children's law center is a great organization and I think they are, do have in mind, like you help children by helping families, but, sort of for my personal myth busting is you can't say you care about children if you don't care about their families and if you don't care about their communities. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> okay. So is there anything else that I didn't ask that you wanted to make sure you got to, to make a point about here around the family justice initiative? Um, I mean, the one other thing I'll say about the family justice initiative is we, we are, 
we are a national initiative. We want to have participation from all states. Um, so far, we have a little bit over half the states participating, but um, we do have a new website, um, familyjusticeinitiative.org. Okay. And we would love to have people go to the website, sign up to endorse our mission, which is to ensure that every parent and every child has high quality legal representation okay. um, and get involved. We, the more people we have as part of this initiative and the more voices we bring to the table, the better it is for all of us. So that's okay. the last thing I would want to say. <laughs> all right. So what are three takeaways um, that you would like to share with the audience for taking action? And if you don't have three, maybe you have one big one, but what are some takeaways for taking action? Uh, so one takeaway in terms of collaboration, which I think we have learned through the last two years of the Family Justice Initiative is that it's not easy. We have, especially in the beginning, had a lot of back and forth between parents and children's council and understanding each other and having similar goals. And some of those conversations about sort of who cares more about children and their safety. So I guess one takeaway I'd have is collaboration's not easy, but I think it's worth it. (laughs) And that in the end, you come out with a better you know, better work product, better messaging. So keep, keep going at it, even though today felt like, oh man, yes. we're just at each other's throats. Yes. That's just the process, huh? That's the process. Keep huh. doing it. Keep having the hard conversations. Huh. It's worth it. Okay. Yeah, that would be a major takeaway. And I think another takeaway is that this can be done. You know, think about implementing these changes in your jurisdiction, even if you're not a Family Justice Initiative demonstration site. What are some changes you can make, small changes that could make a big difference for your clients? And uh, you have a third one or? I don't have a third one. Okay, not a problem. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're getting to the end and I'd like to just ask a few questions for the audience to get to know the guests a little bit better. So the first one is, what surprised you about this podcast today? Um, what surprised me about, it, it was fun. All right. <laughs> yeah, All right. it was fun to All talk right. about. <laughs> yes. um, what's your favorite thing or place in Colorado? My favorite thing or place in Colorado, you know, I went to Denver for a meeting. I believe it was the NACC conference a few years ago. And I went to the train station that had been redone. And it seemed, you know, very like place where people could get together and pass through. And I I just loved it. I thought it was a really cool place. All right. (laughs) Where's a place in the world you dream of visiting one day? Um, I've always wanted to go to Thailand. Okay. Yes. And I've never been. I've so. not been either. It's on my list too. What's your perfect meal? My perfect meal would be with my family and um, probably Greek food. Oh, I right. love saganaki. Okay. The cheese where they pour liquor on it and light it on oh, fire. Okay. And then uh, baklava I love too. All right. So that would be a part of it. Delicious. Last question is... Mm-hmm. What is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? So I think that my views on parenting have changed since I have kids of my own. Um, And I last year had a really hard year with health issues and also became very depressed. And even though I had such a hard time seeing that, like how important I still was in my kids' lives and then also how much professionals can help and you can get better. So I I think I've changed my views on 
how important parents are to their kids, no matter what is okay. going on with that parent. And then also that people can change and that people can get help and improve their situations. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Liz, I just want to thank you again for taking time out of your schedule today to speak with me. Um, and we're going to follow up with some of our office directors to see if they want right. to maybe be demonstration sites. And maybe we'll come back and, and follow up in a few years when you get some data. Yes, that would be wonderful. And we would love to have a Colorado demonstration site. I think it would be the ideal place. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab Battle. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, take action. Learn, listen, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action.